Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Good day to you, Sherry. How are you? I'm good. We have a guest today. New year, new guest. I know. I'm excited. I'm excited, too. Um, before we bring our guest on, I want to, to read a little piece of something that she has written. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do that a few times throughout this episode, but our guest today has some really, uh, the word that comes to mind is hard earned, hard earned thoughts, hard earned hurt, hard earned anger, hard earned opinions, because she's lived it and sh- she's living it right now. And I think one of the things that's really cool about our guest today is it's not just about the situation she's in. She's got a broader view on how what she's going through is similar to what so many others are going through in society and how this is not okay. But I want to start by reading something that she has written, and then we'll bring her on and and get her to respond to it. I look at the face that looks back at me from the mirror, and it's jarring. I look like I've aged 10 years in just this last one, but it's more than superficial. The heartbreak that came from my husband's near death with end stage alcoholism has cracked open my heart. Kathy, those are powerful words. Welcome to the intoxicated podcast. Thanks for having me. Kathy, let's, before we get into kind of the broader stuff that I alluded to, we want to hear your story. Tell us what this journey has been like for you and your family. Yeah. Um, you know, no, no one chooses to um, have addiction touch their life. I mean, when I met my loved one, I was in my late 20s and I, you know, it was magical. You know, he was a phenomenal person. He was caring. He was thoughtful. He was kind. You know, I would say the first two thirds of our marriage were wonderful. Um, But after the last recession, that's when I saw things turn for him. It really, back in 08, that really affected his business. And he pulled away emotionally. And that's when the drinking started and he's never really been the same since then um several years ago finally came to terms with the fact that i was married to uh an alcoholic a functioning alcoholic but an alcoholic nonetheless and um you know tried a lot of things unsuccessfully to help him um get well Finally, several years ago, we were at, a, I think about three, two or three years ago, we were at a nephew's wedding and he just looked terrible. And it became very clear he could no longer get through the day, let alone a night without drinking. And so after that wedding, I said, you have to stop. And he agreed. He knew it had uh, crossed over into a problem area for him. And so he 
stopped that day, sent an email to all of his golf buddies, and I, you know, had a terrible weekend in terms of being sick. And, but, you know, for the next couple of months, he was sober. Then we were at another family wedding and he started again. And, and that was kind of the beginning of the end. And so over the course of the, the next year plus, he just got sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker. And I wasn't sure if it was the depression, if it, cause he was hiding his drinking by then. Um, was it the depression? Was it the alcoholism? Was it interaction with his heart meds? I didn't, I didn't know. Uh, but last January, he ended up having a, a grand mal seizure due to alcohol withdrawal, was in the hospital for a month, um, and uh, almost died. You know, had encephalopathy, was diagnosed with Korsakoff, and, you know, I wasn't sure who or what was coming home. You know, there were times when they said he may never walk again. Um Luckily, he is better. He's now 11 months sober. But it was a, a really scary, frightening time. And it, it's been a, a tough year. When, when he was drinking in between the two weddings, or after, pardon me, after the second wedding, and he was hiding it, what were the emotions like for you? Was it just all confusion? Um, was, was there... You know, were you angry about this? Um, did you have, you know, he's hiding it, but did you know, did you have inklings? Um, I knew he drank on the golf course with his girlfriends. Um, he would only have a very large glass of wine at dinner with me. That's all I saw. And so I, I just, I was confused because I wasn't, he didn't show this, the typical signs. I, I know Sherry has talked on prior podcasts of the tells. Um, his, his typical tells weren't there. And so I, I wasn't 100% sure it was alcohol. But I will say when, when the paramedics came and when he was in the hospital, I just felt like such a dumb wife. And like they were viewing me as this, you know, pathetic person who just didn't even understand that her husband was that sick and that he basically was drinking himself to death. So that was hard. Oh, yeah. I, I hope you've um, found comfort from that in the knowledge that you're not only not alone, but it's extremely common. Um, and uh, no, nothing dumb about anything that you were doing. Um, so, so he, um, you said he's 11 months sober. Congratulations on that. One of the things that we say often, um, is that sobriety doesn't fix anything. It's, it's just a prerequisite. And I'm hoping that you can respond to that because, you know, I, I don't, I, I know you well enough to know that the last 11 months have not been you know, candy canes and unicorns. Um, can you talk a little bit about what sobriety has been like? Yeah, I mean, I so much is written on somebody struggling with addiction and potentially how to help them get help. There's very little written on 
you know, what it looks like afterwards. That's where I found Sherry's book on He's Sober Now What So Helpful. I really was not prepared for how difficult this year would be. It, it's his emotions, his affect is very flat. So he's not mean, he's not angry or screaming or any of that, but he's not kind either. Um, and my husband was a kind person and caring person. He often acts like he doesn't want to be around me. You know, he goes straight to his man cave, kind of the way he used to do when he was drinking. Um, the depression and anxiety in the beginning was still crushing, just really, really bad. And so they, he is on medication. That is starting to get a little bit better. And I will say, you know, between now and say eight months ago, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing improvements, but you are so right in that sobriety solves nothing. And, and the recovery is so slow. You know, he's been drinking for 45 years. So he's done a fair amount of damage to his brain and to his body. And so, you know, just the functioning in terms of his businesses and his decision-making, it's, it's, I'm starting to see improvements now, but that has been a very slow process. And so that's, that was part of my struggle when he first came home is I don't know what I'm dealing with. Am I dealing with somebody who's brain damaged and isn't going to be able to function on his own again? Am I dealing with someone who, um, you know, is even going to be able to work again? I just wasn't sure. And so it, it's been a long, slow process. That's oh, terrifying. I know when, when I was drinking, there were, a, you know, a variety of drinking mats. Uh, you know, sometimes I would isolate and be sullen often as the weekend was coming toward the end and the work day, the work week loomed, I would retreat to the basement and, and just drink and watch mindless TV and ignore the family. But there were other times when I was jovial and I was excited and I was celebratory. But then when the drinking leaves and the depression and anxiety is still there, which was a huge part of my story. I mean, without that debilitating depression and anxiety, I never would have quit drinking. I finally figured out that while I thought that the alcohol was what alleviated the, the anxiety and depression, and it did on a temporary basis, the alcohol was also the cause of the depression and anxiety. And when I finally figured that out and decided to quit, that was the only piece that was still left. The jovial, the upbeat, the celebratory, that was all gone without the alcohol and that sullen, you know, moping around. And I did a lot of research. I tried to figure out what was going on. And I badgered Sherry with uh, all the things that the research I had done. But for the most part, you know, I was a sad sack for a long time. So your story just lines up so well with ours. I want to talk a little bit about how this experience has changed you. I want to go back to your, your writing that I referenced right off the top and read another paragraph. I'm quick to tear now, my emotions riding right under the surface. I'm not afraid of those tears. I've earned them. And I have them at the ready for anyone who needs to share their truth with me and feel heard. 
that's just beautiful. There's no question that an experience like this changes, not just the drinker, but the loved one. And you, you expressed that very well. Would you say like that you don't have the energy or the time for those kind of surface level conversations anymore? And that you want to, as painful as it is, you want to be in the, the deep conversations and, and have meaningful connection. Is that, is that what I'm hearing here? Yeah. I, you know, it's, you, you can take any difficult situation and live in the darkness of it. And it's, it's easy to go to the anger, but the anger doesn't solve anything. And so for me, if I'm, if in my own recovery and in my own life, if I'm, if I'm going to get through this and have it be meaningful, I think there's, there's always the opportunity to grow. And for me, I think this experience has really deepened my level of understanding of the struggles of what everyone's going, you know, there's the, the saying, everyone's going through something. And I know, Matt, you've shared that by sharing your story so openly, it gives others permission to share their story. And I, I certainly have found that as well, that my willingness to share, I, ju I just traded texts with a, with a former work colleague from probably 30 years ago, and we just did a quick back and forth, but he was sharing how his brother, you know, has an addiction problem. And, and, and so we were able to connect over that and um, how difficult it is to watch a family member struggle so, so bad. And, and, you know, beyond that, similar to what you were saying earlier, it's hard to go back and have trite conversations. And definitely for people who, you know, I have, I have some extended family members who, who want that happy talk. You know, they're willing to hear your pain, but they want you to get to the, the finish line, which is like, and here's how everything is all better now. Mm. And I, I'm not at that place yet, you know, right now it's just painful. So I've, I've just learned, I don't have a lot of time or energy for, for people who need me to make them feel better about the pain I'm in. Um, and so I know my tears and my pain gives other people permission to begin. And I have had that. I've had a couple of friends reflect on, you know, I'm concerned my husband's an alcoholic. And, and they, so I'm now the safe space that they can come to, to kind of check in and be like, is this normal? He's telling me this is normal, you know? Yeah, that, mm -hmm. that's, uh, the way I look at it, that's a heavy burden to carry because you end up in serious conversations a fair, you know, fair part of the time, but it's also a really rewarding space. It, it, it feels more meaningful than the, the surface level conversations. Has it, when, when you have conversations, when you have friends, they can't handle it. Has this cost you friendships or are you prepared for this to cost you friendships? I am prepared for that. It, you know, ironically, it's not that many in terms of friendships. It's been more extended family members, um, particularly with my loved one, who, you know, th they don't necessarily want to have to reflect on their own family traditions and habits, you know, that contributed 
to um, what ended up happening with him. And, and so for me right now, a little bit of space and a little bit of distance is what's been helpful. Let's talk a little bit about that because your husband and I have similar backgrounds and I think have families who have similar views on alcohol as all upside with no, no potential damage or danger. I want to read another little piece that you wrote in talking specifically about your in-laws and how everything was centered around champagne. You said people who cling that fiercely to the sunny side can't help but be hiding a truth they can't face. Wow. Um, so the when it comes to his family and, you know, obviously he was hospitalized. I mean, this is not minor. Um, what has that been like? It just complete denial or um, refusal to have those hard conversations? What's that been like for you? Um, oh, yeah. Um, in the beginning, I tried to do a good job of keeping everyone informed of what was going on with my loved one, what the doctors were saying. He was in the hospital for a month. So this was not a small uh, incident. And, but it, it, over time, it, you know, it just got to the place where, again, they would hear the bad stuff and they'd want to throw the silver lining on it. But, he, you know, there's this and, you know, in, in trying to pry out of me that, that there's something good to look forward to here. And I just finally, you know, it, I was in overwhelm mode. You know, one, one day I'm researching rehab places and the next day I'm researching nursing homes because I don't know where he's ending up. I'm fighting with insurance companies. I'm fighting with the hospital to try and get him care. I'm trying to keep my, my young adult children informed and be there for them. I'm trying to run his businesses. I'm trying to keep my day job, which pays for our insurance. And so at some point I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't keep feeding their need for good news when, when there just wasn't any at that point. And so luckily one of, one of their family members stepped in and kind of became that single point of contact who, you know, could hear kind of the whole truth. I would share it with her and then she would decide what and how much to share with everyone else and kind of acted as that go between. Um, but, but it was tough. And there were a lot of promises to support us in many ways to help with his businesses, to come visit him. And, you know, they just didn't follow through on those things. So at a, at a time when we probably needed some, you know, meanwhile, I have a brother who lives in another state who every day would say, do you want me to fly down there? Do you need me to come? You know, even in COVID. So that was hard to feel like they supposedly care. They want all these updates, but then there wasn't any real action um, to support their intentions. Yeah. Wow. That's got to be unbelievably difficult. You've used the term end-stage alcoholism, and you've talked about a month in the hospital. I think 
for our listeners who haven't maybe gotten to that point yet. Um, we've thrown around some some terms. I think Sherry wanted to ask, um, what was your question, Sherry? Well, I was just wondering, like, um, because I think there are a lot of our listeners that um, maybe don't understand what end stage alcoholism looks like and all the the effects, like the grand mal seizure. Can you kind of tell us what he was going through and what these? Um, I know, um, you know, some of the terms are. Um, yeah, not everyday terms. Yeah, what what do yeah, the medical terms so mean? Maybe if sure. you could just explain like what his medical diagnosis and what those mean. And yeah, he's yeah, great recovering. question. Um, you know, it, it's great that you're asking that because this is one of those things I would love for more people to know because I certainly didn't know what I was dealing with in that last year. He started acting differently. He would do things like. Uh, list and sort of kind of fall fall to one side, sort of le fall into the wall, but not in your typical falling down, you know, as we, we've seen people who have had too much to drink and they, you know, it's not that it was, it was different than that. It's hard to describe it. And I was like, what is going on? And at one one night he came home, he kind of did that. And I said, are you okay? And he said, I need to sit down. You know, no, 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 um, I couldn't smell alcohol on him or, and, and he, you know, his tells weren't there. He was just off and he sat down and he kept trying to talk about the dog, but he couldn't finish the sentence. And he kept looking at him and gesturing. And so finally, I'm I'm Googling um, symptoms of a stroke, like I thought he was having a stroke. And it it was kind of 50-50, you know, his face hadn't fallen, but there there was just something. So I, I finally called, I said, we're either going to the emergency room or we're, we're calling your, your doctor. And he's like, I, I think I just need space. I'm like, you are not okay. And so I called his doctor and they're like, he's, he's probably having a stroke, get him to the hospital. So I did, and of course it's COVID, so you can't stay. They ran the full panel, couldn't couldn't find anything. We found out later he did have a couple of strokes, but I, I don't know that it was that night. Um, but occasionally, I, I very rarely saw him eat anymore. Like if I would make dinner, he would be like, oh, I had a big lunch. That happened a lot. There, occasionally he would grill, he'd have a couple of bites of food, and would throw up. Just very strange, very different from what I, I had seen before. And things he used to eat a lot of, like meat, he would he would throw up. Um, and then and then finally that morning of of the grand mal seizure, he he came in early that morning. He had a fat lip; it was all swollen. So clearly he had already fallen, but he didn't remember falling. And um, and then finally later that morning had the seizure and they they took them. So so what they ended up, what your listeners need to know is as people are moving into that end stage alcoholism, they drink their calories. And I mean, I knew what little I saw him eat at home. He was eating more and more like a teenager, I would say. Um, frozen pizzas, I saw a lot of, but 
they drink their calories. And so what ends up happening is your body gets severely depleted of critical vital nutrients, B1 being, being the particular one for him, although there's others, but, um, the, the number one vast majority uh, cause of B1 deficiency is alcoholism and you're, it's, um, vital for your brain. If you don't have B1, your brain literally starts getting damaged. Um, and you end up having other things like your liver obviously can't process all the alcohol that's coming in. So that starts crossing the, the blood brain barrier and other things. So there, there were, there were quite, quite a few things when he was in the hospital, but it's really important that if you start to see these physical symptoms, he needs to be tested for, for, he needs a, a toxicology panel. Cause even if he's not telling you the truth, there's a pretty good chance. Um, so with him, they just high dosed him on B1, but it, it took, it took weeks. And um, delirium tremens is again, a, a life threatening thing that can happen when you're in end stage alcoholism. Usually it only, it only goes on for about three days. What, what a lot of people don't realize is while, you know, detoxing from heroin can be extremely painful. It's not deadly. Whereas detoxing from alcohol can kill you. And um, delirium tremens is one of those things. So there's hallucinating and, and other things. He, he had DT for over two weeks, which, you know, I had nurses and people in the hospital, like you could tell they knew this was not normal, but mm -hmm. didn't want to say anything to me about it. Um, and then they diagnosed him with encephalopathy. So Vernica Korsakoff is a syndrome that happens because of B1 deficiency. Encephalopathy, swelling of the brain is the first, you know, chronic acute part of that. But then 80% of the cases turn into Korsakoff, which is permanent brain damage and usually in the memory centers of the brain. So I, I really didn't know what was coming back when he came home. He is kind of a miracle. I definitely had my prayer warriors out there praying for him and, and he, he's way more functional than I, than I ever thought he was gonna be. But so many people think about the liver. Yes, the liver is affected, but other parts, your heart, your brain, your gut are all affected by chronic alcohol use as well. Well, thank you for giving us that detailed um, understanding. I mean, you said uh, some so many so very important things. Just the the fact that detoxing can be deadly, and this this is the substance of all the drugs that has been legal forever, and that we you know use in every part of our society. And yet, it's when it comes to the detox stage, the the most deadly. Um, that's, a, that's amazing. Now, with all of this severe, severe medical, you know, stuff that he has been through, I, I know what your opinion is on the backside now in sobriety. Um, and, and it's the obvious one. What is a little bit surprising to me is I, you have shared with us that if he, you know, he understands that sobriety is a requirement. But even after going through all of this, if he could drink, he would choose to moderate. He, he said that in the hospital, right? Yeah, while he was still trying to eat his blanket, thinking it was clam chowder, 
Um, mm. The social worker was was in the room, and you know, trying to gauge his his willingness to quit drinking, and he um, said he would prefer to moderate. And I made a point of ensuring that the doctors conveyed to him, you know, that this he's at the life and death stage with this. And so that, that has been effective for him. I know it's not effective for every person who struggles with addiction, but he doesn't want to die. And so that, that death sentence so far has kept him sober. Yeah, that, that's amazing. You, you've also shared with us that obviously the the last you know 10 years you, you didn't like the last 10 years it was it was difficult it was a challenge for the marriage there was nothing pleasant about it but when he recalls it he says that he thinks it's not so bad and another piece from your writing that i want to share with our listeners you say no he didn't crash my car or steal from my family or cheat on me but that's a painfully low bar I, I think that's profound because the degree to which we normalize these things, we normalize alcohol abuse, whether it's addiction or not, just starting from teenage binge drinking or, or college age binge drinking, the way we normalize this, um, it, it leads to us thinking, oh, that wasn't so bad. When as the loved one, as the spouse, it, it's devastating. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? the fact that alcohol is so normalized and, and not just in society, but in your relationship? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing that I've become painfully aware of, you know, coming out the other side of this is I now see the effects of alcohol everywhere. And I, I hate to be that, you know, that, you know, I'm a hammer and, and there's all those nails, but, um, you know, I grew up in a family where alcohol was normalized. Um, there, there wasn't a lot of problem drinking, but there, but it certainly was normalized. And, you know, we grew, both of us grew up in a, you know, upper middle class, you know, community. And it just was seen as, you know, what you do with friends and you celebrate and, and, you know, similar to some of the things that you've shared with sports, you know, we lived near, a baseball stadium, you know, when we were young adults, you'd certainly go there and, and drink. But now that I see how serious this is and, and what he's been through, it's I I almost can't read the paper now without mm. seeing so many examples. You know, there's the car crash, there's the misbehaving you know, executive, there's the flame out of the, the, you know, celebrity, um, even, even, you know, people I know in my extended network, I, I think back to some people I know who just were so isolated and I didn't understand it. And now in hindsight, I think, oh, they're probably, they're probably married to somebody with a substance use disorder. You know, I really should reach out to them because they're probably lonely, you know, so it's hard not to see it everywhere now. I have a friend, we have a friend, a very good friend, whose mother passed away uh, 15 years ago now, maybe. And the, 
the death certificate says cancer. And that's what she was battling toward the end that we are all aware of. But after I came out as an alcoholic in sobriety, our friend confided in us and said, you know, not only is it likely that the drinking that her mother did um, led to the cancer or contributed to the, to the cancer diagnosis to, to begin with, but she drank so much that it prevented her from getting the treatment. What, what should have been pretty normal course chemo and radiation, her liver was not able to, to tolerate it. So, so she didn't get the life-saving treatment because of the alcoholism. Now that never appears on the death certificate and, and nobody. Well, my brother, John, he passed away from a heart attack, but yeah. he and my sister were divorced at the time. And, and I know he sat in his new place and drank himself to death. When you were describing the medical issues that your husband was experiencing, that was totally my brother-in-law. Yeah, And I'm 100% certain. Like you said, it affects the heart. It affects the gut. He drank his calories. You know, it's so sad. We read the paper in the same way you do. We we read what it says, and then we think, you know, what's behind that? Because there's almost always something behind it. And just the, I don't know, it's like we're still afraid to be accused of pointing the finger in a direction that we can't verify, which I guess there's some some good to that. You can't just speculate in the media, but the, you know, you, you read these cases, like you talk about the celebrity flame out or the misbehaving executive, we know what's happening, but they, they never report on that. It's, it's mysterious why the celebrity flamed out or, or, you know, the, the, the heart attack that's unexplained. So uh, we, we well, definitely. What, what's hard about that is, is, you know, there's statistics about, you know, how many people die from addiction, but it's so grossly underreported when oh, you look yeah. at just the examples that you and that the three of us know directly, it's so underreported in terms of how much um, substances, particularly alcohol, really do in terms of taking lives. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Another, another topic that we want to cover with you um, it, it's commonly said and believed in the recovery community that relapse is part of recovery. And I understand that I, myself, I relapsed and, and tried again and relapsed and tried again for 10 years. So I get that, but it's just assumed that if you are the loved one of someone in recovery, that you're just going to go along for that bumpy, horrible, hellacious ride of relapse and recovery. Can you talk a little bit about, especially in this, this situation that you've been in, when it has been quite literally life and death, holding on by a, a shoestring, what the thought of, you know, your husband, he's 11 months sober, but that the relapse could be coming around the corner and you're just expected to kind of hang on and, and go along for that ride. Talk a little bit about the emotions that that churns up for you. Yeah, I, I have some, I, on the one hand, when, when you, when you do the work we've all done to learn about addiction and really understand it and read the research and, and 
the effective ways to help people get well. I appreciate the relapse is normal um, approach in the sense that there's a lot of shame and guilt around addiction. And the more we can reduce that shame, the more likely people are to seek out help sooner. So totally support, you know, reducing the shame that's associated with this. At the same time, what a lot of people in the recovery community don't consider is the years, if not decade in my case, that we've already been through with our loved ones. And my loved one tried, you know, to quit one time and then started again, but he had been moderating and I'm sure his version of the Matt's rules he had been doing his version of that over the last decade. I mean, I can't even tell you how many conversations we've had to have about his drinking. So to, to tell somebody that, yeah, relapse is normal and, you know, you just need to be okay with that and it, you're being unhelpful or unreasonable to say he can't relapse I, you know, I don't buy it. Number one, I, I have extended family members who have all quit and have not relapsed. My loved one is one of them, you know, but in his case and in many people's cases, it is life and death. So if they relapse, like they, it's, it's very reasonable that they could die if they relapse. So I, I just think the recovery community can sometimes be a little tone deaf about that. You've done a lot of research, a lot of reading. You're one of certainly one of the most knowledgeable people that I know, you know, who hasn't studied this and gotten a degree in, in, in this field. Talk a little bit about, you know, you've shared with us that the low success rates of the 12 step programs but the fact that they're still the gold standard, they're still what everyone turns to. There's a, there's a, a kind of an underlying reason behind that. What, what have you uncovered? Why do you think, and, and I'm not here to bash AA for some people, AA is a fit, but sadly for really a majority of people, it's not. So why do we keep going back to, to the 12 step programs and saying, this is the way we get healthy. What are your thoughts on that? Well, what was helpful was reading Ann Fletcher's book, Inside Rehab, where she did quite a bit of research around it. And, and she's even interviewed some of the folks that you, you know, Dr. Weiss, who you recently had on your podcast, I believe was one of the, the people that she had on there. And it's it's pretty appalling when you start to realize what she's uncovered that there, you know, the the research community has found more effective ways to help people recover. As you know, there is no one size fits all model. Um, but there's also just this willingness to accept failure in this. Um, you know, I, I work in a research and policy space. And, you know, why, why would we accept when I'm on these loved ones calls where somebody is re relapse three, five, 15, like not kidding, 20 times. At some point, how are you not saying what I'm doing is not working? We need to try something else. And so part of what, what she found in her research is 
a lot of rehab facilities and a lot of addiction counselors are people who have who have been through recovery themselves and 12 steps is what worked for them and so they tend to you know favor what what they know rather than looking objectively at the research and so and you know the conclusion the experts she interviewed were came to until the payers which is insurance companies and and family members start insisting on more transparency around success rates, um, the adoption of these better modalities, it's tough to get it to change. Um, You know, smart recovery is an example. You know, it has been well-researched. They see the family members as assets. And they recognize that in many cases, the family members just need better tools in terms of helping their loved ones begin to get ready to make that change. And they have committed to continuing to update their strategies as new research proves better better approaches. But a lot of the rehabilitation centers out there and others don't. And and certainly even well-meaning friends, you know, you were talking earlier about what do, what do you say to friends? I had a friend yesterday say, hey, have you, you know, tried Al-Anon? And I just wanted to shake my head to say, yes, I'm well aware of Al-Anon. Didn't work for me. I'm sure it's helpful for some folks, but there's lots of other options. And, and you know, I really hope people start to look for those other options. And, and I love any option that puts science first and is committed to keeping up on evolving science because this, the brain really is the final frontier of our biology, right? It's the one thing that we don't, not only don't fully understand, we, we majority don't understand what's going on in our brains. So I, I love that. It, it's fascinating to me that the, the gold standard is, you know, based on philosophy that served us well and saved literally millions of lives. But but it's a philosophy that was written, you know, 80 plus years ago. And without updates, it, it, it remains the gold standard. When Sherry and I first got involved in this work, my goal was to create a better mousetrap. There is an often cited article from The Atlantic from years ago that cites the um, Alcoholics Anonymous success rate at under 10%. So single digit success rate. Nobody really knows what the success rate is because that's a really difficult thing to track in a model like AA where people come and go as they please. And there's no really formal structure. But my philosophy at the time was, gosh, we got to be able to do better than single digit success rate. And one of the things that I learned over over time and, and experience is I don't think it's that AA is doing it wrong. It's that, as we talked about, there is no one size fits all. People come to substance use disorder from so many different angles. And what works for one person is different than what works for other people. In in our Shout Sobriety group, we talk about spirituality, but it's not the lead like it is in the 12 steps. You know, you've got a spiritual deficiency. Let's fix that. There are other things. And so when I meet people and they're looking for help, it's, it's common at this point where I say, gosh, I understand the situation you're in. You do need help. What, what we do at Shout Sobriety isn't, isn't going to help you. Um, you. You need something different. And so it's not a matter of who's going to be the best, which I think is often the mentality. 
it's a matter of we need all of these different options um, because what works for one person is just so vastly different than what works for others. Um, So, yeah, I I love the fact that you are so interested in and passionate about this 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 bigger picture and the impact of society Um, and you know, the fact that society often turns a blind eye to things where we're uncomfortable. Um, but this is a complex problem and, and that's why it's one that doesn't go away. If you think of all the, you know, w- we live in a city in Denver where we've got a huge homeless population and a huge homeless problem and everything we try doesn't seem to be working to solve the problem. And you've still, you still run into those people that are like, ah, just tell them to get a job. You know, the bums need to get a job. Oh my gosh. If it was that simple, we would have solved this so long ago, but it needs everybody pulling and every all the resources that are that are possible to address the problem. And the less we sweep it under the rug, and the more that we face face up to the epidemic that is alcohol use disorder, um, the better off we'll all be. If if you would, Kathy, talk a little bit about where you go from here. You're at 11 months of sobriety. Um, you have goals for your relationship goals for the rest of your life. You are doing your work, but I, I know that you've shared with us. You can't do all the work. You have expectations of what your husband's side of the work looks like. Can you talk a little bit about the future? Yeah. Um, it's, as many of us who are in the echoes group and in your echoes group and are are spouses of folks with an addiction challenge, you know, the, the, the question we live in for so long is, should I stay or should I go? Um, When, when you're in a long-term marriage, obviously the desire is, you know, to be there, to, to, um, have to build back to a healthy marriage so far the efforts we have gone through like couples therapy and things like that are not working very well and and you know i think your your podcast does a lot in short in terms of helping people understand that the post the post addiction phase again is only phase one and that the road is pretty pretty tough from there and so so much of it is trying to each of us my loved one and I each of us in our own recovery stage and healing you know so in the early stages when he first came home there's the the immediate triggers of things like he would open a pop a can of pop or soda on the other side of the house and you'd hear that psst and I I I would have almost like a PTSD reaction you know Mm -hmm. fear um that those kinds of things have finally settled down i was not expecting that i was not prepared for how much i would have such a reaction to you know what would normally be seen as pretty normal behaviors you know now that he's just drinking soda um so you know my my preference would be we continue to work on getting well and build our rebuild our marriage and build it into something rewarding again that we're proud of and happy about but I can't do his recovery for him and 
um, there, there's pieces of it he's doing and there's pieces of it he's not doing and I don't know how successful he'll be longer term. Meanwhile, his affect is just sort of flat. There isn't the emotional connection. So some of the most basic needs that I have gone without for a very long time um, aren't there. But his health crisis in January was a real wake-up call for me. I have I have been that that proverbial frog in a pot of water, you know, accepting the little change, the little change, the little change, the little change, and now ten years later, it's it's not a marriage that I want. I always said I I would rather be alone than be in a bad marriage, but I've I've I had a good marriage, but I've been in a bad marriage for quite a few years now. So I'm, I'm looking for a new future and I don't know yet whether my loved one will be part of that. You know, I think that's the question that we're living in over the course of this next year. Um, but in the meantime, my focus is on continuing to heal, continuing to understand, you know, my own contribution to this and um, beginning to envision sort of what the next chapter of my life looks like. You mentioned marriage counseling that had not been successful. One of the things that's interesting to me about the difference between maybe your story and our story, we went along for a long time in my sobriety where we were working on me. I was working on me. I was working my program and trying to get better. And we were working on the relationship, but we, Sherry and I just didn't know enough to recognize that she needed to work on herself. She needed therapy herself and to address the, the pain that she had been through. How did you know that? How did you know that you, you know, you said you've tried Al-Anon, it wasn't a good fit. You're a member of Echoes. You've done all this research. Did, was that just intuitive for you? Or did you read somewhere that gosh, the loved one of the alcoholics been impacted too, and, and they deserve recovery as well. How did you know that? I mean, I think initially when he was in rehab, I was just in overwhelm mode. I mean, mm -hmm. I literally was hanging on by, by my, my fingernails and I knew I needed support because I, I, I didn't know the way forward. I didn't know what recovery looks like. I didn't know what to expect. And I just felt overwhelmed and like I was drowning. And so I started with the family calls from his recovery place. Um, but quickly found that those weren't, I mean, they were helpful in that immediate acute stage, but quickly found that they weren't as helpful as is what I needed at that time. And so luckily found smart, you know, tried a couple of Al-Anon meetings, they weren't a fit for me. And so, you know, then moved to smart recovery, which was kind of the, the next phase of what I needed. I knew I needed better tools in terms of communicating, in terms of, um, you know, trying to understand how, how my loved one got into this situation in the first place. And, and, you know, how to help us have more productive conversations moving forward. I knew we needed therapy in the sense that he has not been my emotional home for a long time. There were definitely certain 
topics we just could not like money we could not discuss productively and so i knew we needed that that neutral voice that didn't it did it didn't work very well um but then once his sobriety became a little more stable i found like my needs evolved again which is how i i you know started listening to your podcast and found echoes of recovery which has been so helpful specifically because it's the spouses of of recovery what i found in kind of group situations is the parents of adult alcoholics felt very willing to tell me and other spouses to just leave their spouse even mm. though we would never tell them to give up on their adult child um just some really inappropriate conversations and i just felt that the the broken trust and the resentments and the intimacy, all of that is is so different for a spouse than it is for just a general family member. And so I really needed, I really needed to be with other people who were spouses because the the needs are just different. Yeah, absolutely. And and I don't want to just leave that hanging that I'm poo-pooing uh, relationship recovery, relationship therapy. I think it's important. One of the things that we've learned doing this work, though, is that it, it's got to come after both people are well involved in their own individual work. Because we tried to do uh, relationship work before before Sherry had had found her own program, and that was a disaster. The work that we do, you know, now now that we're we've both worked on ourselves and continue to work on ourselves, that's been a lot more successful. And so I hope. I hope that you are able to to tackle those tough con, you know topics and with that neutral party and and make progress as as time progresses. Kathy, what are you going to do with all of this now? You like I said, you are very impressive with the level of knowledge and understanding you have not only about what you've been through, the impact on society in a more general sense. Many people um, who gain all this knowledge feel compelled to do something with it. it do you have any itch like that yourself? Do you, do you want to share what you've learned with, with the greater population? You know, it's interesting that you asked that question. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like I'm still pretty early in this process. At the same time, I, I work for a social impact nonprofit in the education space. We do some policy and advocacy work there. And it feels like the voice of the family members is not being heard in all this. So it feels like there's an itch there, but I don't yet know what that looks like. So I'm, I'm, as I, I'm continuing on my own journey, I'm, I'm certainly open to that and, um, you know, kind of living in that question of, you know, do I start heading more into this space? There's a part of me that feels like as the spouse, it's kind of like what we've talked about in Echoes that it's not our story, but it is our story too, you mm -hmm. know? Do I have a right to talk about this? Do I have a voice in this? I, I think as family members, we do. And I, I think there, you know, maybe that's part of what has been silent for too long that maybe shouldn't be. So I don't know what that looks like, but I'm, but I'm open to it. 
Well, you're a tremendous spokesperson for the loved ones. And so we, we hope that your voice continues to be heard. Um, we will put in the show notes a link to Ann Fletcher's book, Inside Rehab, that Kathy mentioned. Thank you for sharing that resource with our listeners. And just thank you for being a part of our lives. We've just loved getting to know you, Kathy. And um, we look forward to getting to know you better as we roll down the road together. Sounds great. It's been uh, really helpful. And obviously, I'm always happy to contribute in any way I can to this community. Excellent. Thank you very much. And listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Untoxicated Podcast. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.